2: Hi, it's Ellen Hendrickson of the Savvy Psychologist podcast again. Mignon was really hoping to record the show this week, but she still has a cold and sounds terrible, so you get me again. This week, we have a tidbit about why we say the proof is in the pudding, a meaty middle about why sentences get weird when they start with something like it is and they are, and at the very end, I have the winner of the National Grammar Day Limerick Contest, so stick around. And now, on to pudding. Have you ever heard people say, the proof is in the pudding? If so, they were feeling skeptical. That's because this expression is another way of saying, prove it, or I'll believe it when I see it. For example, if you promise your mom you'll clean your room after school, She might say, okay, but the proof is in the pudding. She means that she appreciates your intention, but she'll believe you only when she sees a clean bed and tidy floor. This expression makes a lot more sense when you realize that today's version, the proof is in the pudding, is a shortened version of a much older phrase, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. In other words, you can't tell if a pudding is any good by looking at it you have to eat it. Results are what count, not just appearances, promises, or theory. This phrase first appeared in 1605 in a list titled Certain Proverbs, Poems or Posies, Epigrams, Rhythms, and Epitaphs of the English Nation in Former Times and Some of This Present Age. Based on this long title, we can tell that this phrase was well established by 1605 and probably long before that. There's another pudding phrase in this list. As fit as a pudding for a friar's mouth. This phrase, now obsolete, means that something is appropriate, suitable, or welcome. Other versions are fit as a fritter for a friar's mouth and fit as a pudding for a dog's mouth. All of this is very interesting, but we still haven't answered one important question. What is a pudding? If you live in the United States, the answer is easy. It's a dessert made by mixing sugar, egg yolks, milk, and butter, and boiling them gently until they thicken. The result is cold and creamy, served in a bowl, and eaten with a spoon. If you live in the United Kingdom, the answer is a bit more tricky. Pudding can refer to any sweet dish served as a dessert, it can also mean a specific kind of dish that's boiled or steamed, either in a basin, cloth, or a piece of intestinal tract. It might be sweet, like Christmas pudding or sponge pudding, or it might be savory, like black pudding, made from animal blood mixed with fat and oatmeal, steak and kidney pudding, made with steak and kidneys, or haggis, made with animal lungs, liver, heart, and and or tongue, all stuffed into a sheep's stomach. Can that kind of concoction possibly taste good? I guess you won't know until you try it. The proof, they say, is in the pudding. That segment was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial, and you can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com or on Twitter as dragonflyedit. And now, on to expletive sentences.
0: For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today.
2: A listener named Joe wants to know whether he should say there is a couch and a coffee table in the room or there are a couch and a coffee table in the room. His question brings up an interesting quirk about the word there. One of the most common ways to organize an English sentence is to put the subject first and the verb second. That's how it works in sentences such as I coughed and Pat slept. The pronoun I and the noun pat are the subjects, and they come first. And the verbs coughed and slept come second. We're all very comfortable with sentences that use this pattern, even if we're not all comfortable when we're sick. Getting back to Joe's question, the word there can function as both a noun and a pronoun. But even though there comes first and is followed by a verb in sentences such as, There are a couch and a coffee table in the room. There isn't the subject in that sentence, and that's why Joe is confused. Sentences beginning with there are and there is are using a different kind of sentence structure called an expletive construction. You can get a sense of how expletive sentences are different from the more common subject verb sentence structure because if you swap in another noun for the word there, The meaning changes. For example, let's create a similar sentence with a different noun in place of there. Instead of, there is a couch and a coffee table, let's try, Bob is a couch and a coffee table. The new noun, Bob, is clearly the subject and drives our verb choice. I'm making some sort of weird statement about Bob actually being a couch and a coffee table, but the verb choice is more obvious. Now, Let's try a more normal noun for the sentence such as happiness. Happiness is a couch and a coffee table. Again, the noun, happiness, is clearly the subject and drives our verb choice. A native speaker would never be tempted to say happiness are a couch and a coffee table. But when the sentence starts with there instead of Bob or happiness, it's easier to get confused. You think there is the subject. But you also sense that something seems different or wrong. In the expletive sentence, the pronoun there is just filling up space. It's just kind of hanging out, pointing to what's going on in the other part of the sentence. It's not the subject. The subject is actually a couch and a coffee table. It's a compound subject since it has two nouns connected by the word and, which makes it plural, but it's still a subject. And it's always the subject of a sentence that drives your verb choice, even if the subject isn't at the beginning of the sentence. Now that you know the subject is a couch and a coffee table, and that it's plural, it's easy to choose the right verb, are. There are a couch and a coffee table in the room. Plural subjects take plural verbs. Here are some examples. Cookies are good. Trees. Are tall. A couch and a coffee table are in the room. There are a couch and a coffee table in the room. Did you hear what I did with those last two sentences? In the first one, I used the common sentence order and put the subject first. A couch and a coffee table are in the room. In the second one, I flipped it around and added a there are to make an expletive sentence. There are a couch, and a coffee table in the room. Many sources say that expletive sentences are bad style and should be avoided, but Mignon thinks that advice is extreme, especially in fiction. For example, the editors of The American Scholar have a list of what they consider the 10 best sentences, and four of them are expletive sentences. Here's one from Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. There is nothing more atrociously cruel than an adored child. I'll put a link to the American Scholar article on the transcript of this podcast at quickanddirtytips.com so you can see the other sentences if you want. Nevertheless, you can often rewrite expletive sentences to make them more straightforward, and you can see from our earlier example how easy it is to get rid of the word there and rephrase the sentence there is a couch and a coffee table in the room, easily becomes a couch and a coffee table are in the room. If you want to go wild, you could even use a more descriptive verb and write a couch and a coffee table sit in the room or a couch and a coffee table grace the room. So when you're editing your work and find a sentence that starts with there are or there is, it's worth spending an extra second to check whether rewording it, would make your writing better. Often, it does. And if you decide to keep a sentence with a there is or there are at the beginning, the trick to choosing your verb is to find the real subject of the sentence. And if you want more practice, we have a web bonus for this podcast. Search for expletive sentences at quickanddirtytips.com to get to the transcript of this podcast, and we have some expletive sentences at the end that you can try your hand at rewriting. And finally, I'm delighted to present the clever winner of the National Grammar Day Limerick Contest hosted by the American Copy Editors Society. Faulty parallelism, you see, I eschew most assiduously. Thus said Constable Brown, as he sat himself down and ate Limburger, ham, and sipped tea. Get it? His list wasn't parallel. That limerick was written by Larry Kunz, who is a lead technical writer at Extreme Networks in North Carolina. He also teaches at Duke University and is a fellow with the Society for Technical Communications. Larry is no stranger to winning these contests either. He won the National Grammar Day Haiku Contest in 2012 and came in fourth place in 2016. Congratulations, Larry! I'm Ellen Hendrickson, and if you liked hearing me today, check out my podcast, The Savvy Psychologist. I also have a new book, How to Be Yourself, about how to overcome social anxiety. And if you pre order before March 13th, you'll get a free companion workbook, a Savvy Psychologist ebook on resilience, and be entered to win two apps, Joyable and 10% Happier, and five best selling introvert friendly books just forward your how-to-be-yourself receipt to pre-order at ellenhendrickson.com before March 13th. We all hope that chicken soup, tea, and rest kick in soon, because I know Mignon really misses recording the show. That's all. Thanks for listening.